Welcome to Inside India by UTI International. I'm your host, Ben Haywood. Join me as I embark on an exciting journey through the new and modern India. From the Dabawalas to the Tatas and the Ambanis, let's see what the future may hold for the world's largest democracy. In this series, we feature conversations with business and economic leaders who have lived and breathed the story of India as they tell us their version of what makes this such a compelling and exciting growth opportunity in the 21st century. Stay tuned. India and the United Kingdom share a modern partnership bound by strong historical ties. India's growing youth population, higher purchasing power and rising relevance on the global stage make it a strategic interest for governments across the world. In today's podcast, I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Lord Karen Billamoria, founder and chairman of Cobra Beer. British Indian entrepreneur, Karen wears multiple hats. He is also the chancellor at the University of Birmingham, an active member of the House of Lords, and a very prominent supporter of strengthening the UK-India relationship. And he was also the founding chairman of the UK-India Business Council. So today, we'll bring you Karen's story of how he turned a small idea in a university pub in Cambridge into a multi-million dollar brewing business. Cobra was one of the pioneering export beers, and Karen's vision of bringing a taste of India to Britain back in the 1980s has played a prominent role in the rise of Indian food culture here in the UK. I'm Ben Haywood, and you're listening to Inside India. Welcome, Karen. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You are actually Chancellor of the University of Birmingham. You have a heritage in beer, much like myself, all of which we'll get into later in the episode. And I'm sure, no doubt, we'll have plenty to talk about, not least your love of India as well. But you are an active member of the House of Lords and very prominent supporter of strengthening UK-Indian relationship. And again, all of which we'll get into. But if you could take us back to the start of your career, you qualified as an accountant, and then it was during your time at Cambridge University where you had the idea for Cobra Beer. Could you tell us a little bit more about that journey in the early days and how we've got to where we are today with Cobra? Ben, thank you very much and great to be with you. And we share this brewing heritage in your family for many generations. I came up with the idea for Cobra Beer when I was a, a student. I had qualified as a chartered accountant with what is today EY, Ernst & Young in London. I'd already had a degree in commerce from India before that. I'd graduated at the age of 19 realized my favorite subject was law during my studies. And I went to Cambridge and read law there and really enjoyed it. And while I was at Cambridge, I came up with the idea for Cobra Beer. And like many business ideas, it was through a dissatisfaction with a product or a service and thinking, I think I can do this better. I think I can do this differently. I think I can change the marketplace forever. And another way of expressing that is that you have a passion for something that you love you dislike something on the other hand. So I've always loved beer from the time I've been allowed to drink it in my days in India. I remember in the officers' messes, my father was ended up being commander-in-chief of the Central Indian Army. He was from the Gurkha Regiment and headed the Gurkhas in India. And in the officers' messes, I was allowed to drink beer from the, the time I was allowed to drink it. I always loved beer. But I hated the lager beers I was being presented with in England. I found them too fizzy, too gassy uh, to drink on their own. They bloated me in a pub. And then I used to drink beer with food. And in Indian restaurants, I missed my Indian food from India. I would go to Indian restaurants at least twice a week. And you're eating spicy food. You want something cold and refreshing. You're presented with a lager beer. Yes, the beer was cold, 
but it was fizzy and gassy and it was difficult to drink. It was bloating and it meant I could drink less and I could eat less because you're bloated by the beer. So I said, this is ridiculous. A restaurant owner is losing out. They could be selling me more beer and more food. And that's where the idea evolved because particularly my English friends had introduced me to real ale, to English bitter, uh, which I took an instant liking to. I enjoyed ale in a pub, but I could not drink ale with food because the ale was too bitter and too heavy. And I said, well, hang on, ale drinkers don't like lagers. Ale drinkers go to Indian restaurants when they go and eat curry and they're forced to drink these fizzy lagers. So they're not happy. What is the solution? And that's when I came up with the idea for Cobra Beer to produce a beer that would have the refreshment of a lager and the smoothness of an ale combined, a balanced, rounded, globally appealing taste that would appeal to beer drinkers all around the world. And most importantly, it would accompany all food and in particular, curry and Indian food. So that was my idea. And I wanted my beer to come from India because I'm from India. To this day, my family, my mother, my brother, my uncles, aunts, cousins live in India. I go back there regularly. I went back from the time I was a student. I would go back every year. I now in normal times would go back several times a year to India. I feel equally at home in both countries. And I said, that's where I'm going to produce my beer. And that's and then eventually I got an introduction to Mysore Breweries, the largest independent brewery in India at that time, based in Bangalore, the home of beer in India. And I developed Cobra Beer from scratch, working with their brewmaster, Dr. Karyapa, who trained in the Czech Republic, had spent six years doing a PhD at Prague University and had worked with uh, famous beer brands in Czech Republic, the home of Pilsner Beer. And together we created Cobra Beer from scratch. Thank you, first and foremost, because uh, I've spent many happy nights in Birmingham in Indian restaurants with Cobra beer and a few of them I can remember. And yeah, it's a great beer and a great story. And I guess the early days of the story for you must have been, to some extent, selling the India story, selling an Indian beer to English consumers. How did you kind of find that process and how did you go about doing it? Initially... Kingfisher had already been in the market here for eight years before we started. Kingfisher, the biggest beer brand in India. They'd even started brewing under license in the UK. They had thousands of outlets, restaurants selling Kingfisher on draft as well. So we had huge competition from day one. Carlsberg, one of the biggest beer brands in the world, was in many Indian restaurants. Almost every Indian restaurant used to serve Carlsberg. And there was another German beer that was very popular at that time as well. So we had a lot of competition. And we said the only way we're going to break through is we've got to get the restaurants to stock our product. And I targeted the best restaurants first. And I said, I have to get the best restaurants to sell it. And I've got to have a product that is genuinely different and better, that is going to be not only liked by the consumers more, but that was going to make the restaurants more money. And because of the less gassy, extra smooth taste of Cobra, my whole proposition was my beer is more expensive. I'm importing it from India. It's a super premium beer. It's got a very complex recipe, three varieties of hops and malted barley and maize and rice and wheat and very complex procedure, uh, recipe, process to make the beer. And so it's more expensive. So I priced it more expensive than other beers to start off with. And then I had the double-sized Indian beer bottle. As in India, if you go to India to this day, almost 90% of beer sales are in the double size in India, 650 ml here in the UK, 660 ml bottle size. So I imported the authentic big bottle size, and I was able to say to the restaurants, well, this beer, A, it's in the double-sized bottle, 
It's smoother and less gassy, which means your customers will be able to drink it easily with food and you will sell more beer and you will sell more food and you will make more profit and more sales. And that has been the success of Cobra Beer. That undeniable brand truth about the product is the restaurants sell more Cobra than they would of any other beer because of the way it's produced to go so well with food. So our slogan is brewed smooth for all food. And it's real. It's true. It does it. It says what it does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. And I guess much of the story today, as I just mentioned, and we just spoke about, has been selling Cobra here in the UK, the Western world, to Western consumers. But I know there are some plans afoot for you to go. And I know at times in history, you have sold Cobra in India. I know there is a, another kind of plan at the moment to go and relaunch the brand in India in certain states. And there must be a huge addressable market there. Indians drinking beer at rising rates. Underway, is that still very much on the agenda for you to go and relaunch the brand there? From the beginning, my plan was always to brew the finest ever Indian beer and make it a global beer brand. And in the initial days, it was export only. So for the first seven years, we manufactured in Bangalore, didn't sell a single bottle in India. It was all export to the UK and then to Europe and around the world. And then we moved our production to the UK and Europe after the first seven years. And we have sold over the years from time to time in India. And I've always believed there is huge potential for Cobra in India. India still has one of the lowest levels of per capita consumption of beer in the world. So the potential is huge. And I've always believed in that. Yeah. I mean, and having spent some time over there a few years back when I was doing my own kind of journey of discovery on the Haywards brand, it was just so plain and easy to see how much potential there is and how quick the rates of growth for, for things like beer and craft beer in India, as you say, especially in cities like Bangalore. So uh, looking forward to seeing how that kind of pans out for you. I think I wanted to steer the conversation down towards a lot of what you do day to day now, which is promoting UK-India relations and you are the founding chairman of the UK-India Business Council. You're a founding member of the Prime Minister of India's Global Advisory Council. So how are UK-India relations as we sit here today? And I know there's plans to double trade volumes between India and the UK. How do you see it sitting at the coalface of those relations? And what are you doing to promote relations between the two countries? I think that there's a historical uh, relationship between UK and India that goes back over four centuries. And since India's liberalization in 1991, great efforts have been made by the UK and India to work together in partnership to make the most of the opportunity of that liberalization. And John Major and Narsimha Rao, the prime ministers in 1993, launched the Indo-British Partnership to do this. And I was in the decade to celebrate in 2003, appointed as the UK chairman of the Indo-British Partnership. And from that, I was able to then form the UK-India Business Council in 2007 as its founding chair. So I've always been passionate about putting the UK and India together. And I see myself as somebody, I'm equally at home in the UK and I'm equally at home in India. And I've always believed in India's potential. And I've always believed that one day it will be a global economic superpower. And that is exactly what's happened in the last three decades in fact, the timing is almost coterminous with COBRA. India's liberalization and the start of COBRA, almost identical timing. And you can see it. India is now, along with the United Kingdom, we are the fifth and sixth largest economies in the world in absolute terms. 
And we've got a great special relationship. I always say, yes, of course, the United States relationship is a special relationship the UK has and always will have. But the other special relationship we have is with India. And this year, 2021, is a watershed year for UK-India relations for many reasons. One, we have left the European Union. Brexit has happened. We're coming out of this pandemic. The pandemic has hit the whole world. But the pandemic has illustrated the importance of collaboration and partnership. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine developed by Oxford University with AstraZeneca, British-Swedish company headquartered in Cambridge, is partnering with the Serum Institute of India, the largest vaccine manufacturers in the world, owned by Cyrus Anadar Punawala, fellow Zoroastrian Parsis like me from my community. They're the largest vaccine manufacturers in the world and have a one billion dose contract with Oxford-AstraZeneca. And two in three children in the world are vaccinated by the Serum Institute of India at any one time. So this is a phenomenal partnership, phenomenal partnership. One example. So the ability for the UK and India to work together in trade and goods and services, well, that at the moment is 23 billion pounds. For a country the size of India, the economy the size of India, that should be way higher. So now this year, we have signed an enhanced trade partnership with India where we have set the target to double the level of trade between the UK and India from 23 billion to close to 50 billion by 2030. And we've now launched the consultation to have a free trade agreement with India over the coming years, which we're very excited about doing. In the meantime, we've got various barriers. There are duties in India that are still very high for products like Scotch whiskey, for example, 150%. For automobiles, foreign lawyers are not allowed to practice in India. And Britain has the best lawyers in the world, but they're not allowed to open up offices in India. And that would benefit Indian business and in the Indian economy. So there's lots of liberalization. There are differentiations in tax rates for foreign companies and Indian companies. So lots of ways in which the reform could continue. And the investment is an area we should not ignore. The bilateral investment. So Indian companies opening up in the UK. India is one of the largest investors in the UK. Indian companies employ hundreds of thousands of people in the UK. They turn over 50 billion pounds. You look at it the other way around. British companies now are increasingly operating in India, including the big banks, manufacturing companies like JCB. With Cobra, I've got a joint venture with my partners, Molson Coors, the American-Canadian brewers. We've had a joint venture in India for 10 years. And so that potential in India, some of the average growth rate of foreign companies investing in India, UK companies investing in India, is 26%. And there's some companies, even in this climate, growing at over 100% a year. And the UK companies in India employ directly and indirectly a million people. So that is, again, scratching the surface. We could be huge in terms of bilateral investment as well. So I see Enormous potential in all sectors, by the way, in manufacturing, in IT, in ed tech, in fintech, in energy. India's got a, is a leading solar power expert. We in the UK have expertise in wind power. We have expertise in heat. So we can collaborate with climate change now with COP26 coming. The UK's just hosted G7. I was privileged to chair the B7 that fed into the G7. And with COP26 coming up in November in Glasgow, the UK is showing leadership on the global stage, and India is going to be a significant partner of ours in all the key areas going forward. The opportunity is no doubt enormous. And I guess drilling into some of the themes you've picked up on there and how the UK is perceived by India, is there a willingness, do you think, on kind of India's part to loosen some of these tariffs that they've got in place? Is there a 
a kind of willingness to make themselves easier to do business with. Traditionally, as you point out, it has not been the easiest place to do business as a, a foreign participant for various different reasons. At a high level in India, is there a kind of recognition that some of these things need to change? And I guess you'd be privy to some of those conversations. How easy is it to influence change at a top level? It's been an evolving process and there's been regular reform over the years. So, for example, insurance, foreign insurance, you were not allowed to own more than 49% of an Indian insurance business. Now that's been increased to 74%. Lloyd's of London, the largest, most one of the most important reinsurance markets in the world, was not allowed to operate in India. Finally, Lloyd's were given permission to open in India. Foreign universities, universities like Birmingham, which you're a proud alumnus of and I'm proud to be chancellor of, Birmingham is one of the largest universities in the UK. It's a Russell Group University, the Ivy League of the UK. It's uh, top 100 in the world. And we're not allowed to open up campuses in India. No foreign university is allowed to open up a campus in India. On the other hand, Birmingham in 2021, at the time of the launch of the Expo in Dubai, is the first Russell Group University opening up a campus in Dubai, a state-of-the-art 5,000 student campus. It's going to be the most modern university campus in the world. AI-powered. It's going to be phenomenally impressive. Now, we could do that in India. We could do that in India. And a lot of the students coming to our Dubai campus will be Indian students as well. So now, finally, India has announced that it is going to allow foreign universities to open up soon. Now, we're waiting for the details to be announced. And when that happens, there will be many universities like Birmingham who would be interested in opening up in India. That's going to be an enormous opportunity to the benefit of India to benefit Indian students and the benefit of the universities from around the world. That's great to hear. And I think as a sort of a follow-on from that, as I mentioned, you've been at the coalface of UK-India relations for the entirety of your kind of career. What is it about India turning directly to India now? And we've touched on certain sectors and things like that. But what is it about India, do you think, that is such an exciting growth story going forward, makes it such an exciting growth story going forward? And how is that kind of evolving? I know there's move to promote make in India and steal business away from manufacturing business away from other parts of Asia and things like that. But what is it, you know, right now? Why is there such excitement around the India story, do you think? We in the UK have just released our integrated review. The integrated review is the first time we have produced such a document, a document that covers Britain's strategy going forward in defense, in security in foreign policy. At the heart of that is the tilt to the Indo-Pacific. And if you note terminology, earlier people used to refer to the Asia-Pacific. We are deliberately referring to it as the Indo-Pacific because India is a big part of that opportunity. So we are prioritizing India going forward, not just in business, but as a strategic partner when it comes to security, when it comes to defense, and when it comes to trade and business as well. And we see India as a huge opportunity, a huge, a strong partner and ally for the UK going forward. And the market in India, the growing middle classes, the growing consumer market is just going to keep continuing to grow. The per capita income in India is going to continue to grow. And there's huge opportunity for British businesses to partner in that growth. And we have a lot to offer in the UK as well. I'm delighted to announce that um, on the 1st of July, 2021, 
was a day I celebrated, not just because it's my mother, Yasmin, who lives in Dehradun in India. She turned 85 on the 1st of July, and that's wonderful. But she was an international student at the University of Birmingham, as was her father, who graduated in 1931, and my mother graduated in the 50s, and her brother did his PhD and graduated in the 1960s. So now I'm transferred to the university, so I'm the third generation to be at Birmingham and the third generation to be educated at British University. But here's the point that I want to make, and that is in 2007-2008, I spearheaded in Parliament the introduction of the two-year post-graduation work visa for international students, and of course, in it for Indian students as well. That was accepted, it was brought in, so a foreign student paying for an expensive education. We've got the best universities in the world, along with the United States of America, but it is expensive. And I remember how much as an international student, how difficult it was for me to raise the money to come and study in the UK. I'm a Tatar scholar. I had to raise scholarships. I had to raise scholarship loans, which I paid back. So it's really tough, really hard. And if you've got the opportunity to stay on for two years, to earn some money, to help pay for your education, to get some work experience, to further build those generation-long links to be living bridges between the UK and the country you come from, including India. Wow. The number of Indian students rocketed. And then it was taken away in 2012 by Theresa May when she was Home Secretary. We kept asking for it to be brought back in. Two of my roles, I'm the co-chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on International Students, and I'm also the president of UKISA, the UK Council of International Student Affairs, which looks after the interests of all 550,000 international students in the country. And we kept saying, bring this back, because all the surveys around the world showed that the number one reason why international students didn't choose the UK as their number one choice was the lack of post-study work opportunities, which countries like Canada and Australia were offering. Good news, Boris Johnson, as soon as he became prime minister, said, I'm going to bring it back. And it is now operational from the 1st of July. And you wait and see the number of students from India is going to rocket over the coming years. And I think that's another huge opportunity, the bridge that's going to be built between the UK and India. More and more students are going to study here, and there will be generation-long links and permanent ambassadors for the UK-India relationship. And also, we now have the Turing scheme of international student exchange, where I hope lots of our students will go to India, and the Turing scheme will evolve to allow Indian students to come to the UK. And we've got a, now a new youth exchange program that's just been announced by the British government between the youth of the UK and India. It's fantastic news, of course. And actually, during my time in India, when I lived there in Delhi, one of my best friends was an English chap studying at an Indian university, and he raves about the experience. So I think if we can promote more of that and more kind of stronger ties between the two countries at that kind of age group, I think it's only a good thing. Absolutely. Great. I know we've touched on themes like entrepreneurship and youth just now. And these are two themes central to the India story is how young its population is and how entrepreneurship runs through the entirety of the country. You are, of course, an entrepreneur as well. What is it about Indians, do you think, and Indian populations, diasporas all around the world, not just in India, that make them so entrepreneurial? It's just a fascinating link that keeps coming up in these podcast episodes. The Indian entrepreneurial spirit, which had been suppressed for decades since India's independence, with all the best intentions, India ended up being a socialist, inward-looking, protectionist, closed economy. 
It had a very low growth rate. There was very little choice for consumers, whether it was a car, you couldn't get a telephone line. You had the waiting list for telephone lines were years to get a telephone line. The consumer was starved of choice. And India's liberalization has unleashed India's entrepreneurial spirit. And that entrepreneurial spirit is now flourishing in India, and it is flourishing in the 30 million Indian diaspora around the world. And the wonderful thing about the Indian diaspora around the world, of which I'm one, in the UK, it's the largest ethnic minority group of the Indians, one and a half million Indians in the UK. And Indians now around the world are reaching the very top. We are living bridges between our countries, the UK in my case, and India, and ambassadors for India, as well as for the countries we live in, in India. So it's a really important part the diaspora plays. And you will now see, which when you look at countries like the UK, just look around the cabinet table. The Chancellor of the Exchequer of Indian origin, the Home Secretary of Indian origin, uh, and I could go on. Alok Sharma, the COP26 Cabinet Minister for Climate Change, Indian origin. So you look at Parliament now, the number of Indians in both the House of Laws, like where I am and in the House of Commons. You look at businesses. Some of the most successful entrepreneurs in the UK are Indians. If you look at the chief executives of some of our largest companies now are Indians. Look at global companies. Microsoft is headed by an Indian. Google is headed by an Indian. MasterCard is headed by an Indian. And I could go on. IBM is headed by an Indian. And Diageo, the, the, one of the largest drinks companies in the world, is headed by an Indian. It's phenomenal. Indians are, are reaching the very top in every field. The head of KPMG now in the UK is an Indian woman. And it's the first time a woman has been head of KPMG ever, and it's an Indian in the UK. So, I, And the head of Deloitte globally, based in America, is an Indian. It's just in every field you look at, the Indians are reaching the very top. And Indians are very talented, very bright, very hardworking, and deserve the success. And of course, you look at the competition. To get into an Indian Institute of Technology in India, the IITs, the engineering colleges, one and a half million school leavers sit the entrance exam, 130,000 make it to the first cut, and then 10,000 get a place at one of the IITs. That's more competitive and difficult than Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale combined, multiplied by many times over. It's so true. And it really is heartening to see and really great to see just how wide-reaching the Indian diaspora and Indian population is in all walks of life. Yes. And sorry, just to reinforce the point, I don't want to boast, but I'm now, as an Indian, president of the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry, the largest, most preeminent business organization in the UK. And it's the first time an ethnic minority origin individual has been president of the CBI. And it's an Indian. So it's another example. It's really awesome. And I guess just with half an eye on time, and I know you're a very busy man, but the final question I tend to ask all of my guests is, how would you like our listeners to think differently about India? What myths would you like to try and bust, in inverted commas, preconceptions would you like to dispel about India? And any parting thoughts on India, and it could be specifically linked to UK-India relations or India as a country, it'd be great to get your thoughts on that. What I would recommend is to people in the UK, all around the world, is to visit India is to go and see and experience India. And once you're there, you realize the vastness and the huge amount that the country has to offer. I say 
and go so far as to say that India is the most diverse country in the world, the most diverse in ethnicity, the most diverse in terrain, in climate, in language, in religions, in every aspect. You go from the deserts, proper sand dune deserts like the Sahara in the northwest to the highest mountains in the world in the Himalayas, to the tropical jungles in the far eastern part of India, bordering Myanmar and Bangladesh, and when you go to that area, to the semi-arid zones of the Deccan Plateau, to the palm trees and rice fields of the southern India of Kerala, to the coastline that is just phenomenal. Everything exists in India. The religions from Every religion, almost every religion you can imagine, exists in India. It's a pluralist society. I'm a Zoroastrian Parsi. I'm one of the smallest communities in the world. There are less than 100,000 of us. We emigrated from what is today Iran, from Persia, from the 8th century, 7th, 8th century onwards, over a 1,000 years ago. And yet you go to India, a country of 1.4 billion people, and everyone knows who a Zoroastrian Parsi is because even a tiny community like ours can flourish in a large country like India. The languages, there are hundreds of dialects. So the variety in India is just phenomenal. And there's a depth to India. It's an ancient civilization. It's a modern country. India's only been independent since 1947. But it's an ancient country, which has great depth in it. And you feel that depth and you see that depth in the history throughout the country. So it's phenomenal that you've got this modern, fast-moving, fast-growing, entrepreneurial, young, in age country, but yet on a foundation of ancient history, going back thousands of years. And a spirituality and the breadth of religions, it is just the most extraordinary country in the world. I absolutely agree with you. And I think that's a really nice way to leave things, Karen. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope one day we can sit and enjoy a, a King Cobra, maybe even a Haywards 5000 together. But in the meantime, wish you the best of luck with your work with the CBI and various other Indo-Pacific alliances that you're working on at the moment. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Ben. Such a pleasure to be with you and look forward to sharing a Cobra together uh, soon. <laughs> Absolutely. Good stuff. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You have been listening to Inside India with me, Ben Haywood. If you like what you have heard, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed, wherever you might listen. Don't forget to leave a review and a rating and tell us about your favorite episode. We will be back with a brand new episode in two weeks' time. Until then, stay safe.